All right, why don't we uh, pray together and ask God to bless us as we get started with this portion of our morning. How are you? Good to see you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege we have of gathering a safe place in order to consider things pertaining to you. We have the freedom to discuss you, God. No one will storm in here today, I don't think, and carry us off. No one's going to arrest me because I said things that society disagrees with. And we thank you for that privilege and blessing. And uh, pray that you'd watch over us today as we discuss things uh, that are intended to help each one of us grow in you. And so help us, Father, to through your spirit to be more the people at the end of class today than we were at the beginning. We pray through Jesus. Amen. So last week, we started a discussion about what I'm kind of uh, loosely calling the core. The idea that there are, in our faith, core ideas that are central and that really need to govern, cast a shadow over all the things that we believe and do, both as individuals and as a church. So we talked about things like, what is theology? I talked about the word theos, which means God. Uh, Ology comes from the Greek word logos, which is word. And so really theology is nothing more than words about God. In fact, it's really nothing more than, than human reflection using words about who God is. And I talked about how in Churches of Christ in the past, sometimes uh, theology has been almost a dirty word. It's like uh, theology is something that people do when they're trying to get away from the Bible, which is not necessarily at all the case, but sometimes we've acted a little bit that way. And I'm, I'm grateful that there are those who've moved in a completely different direction in terms of talking about theology. We, uh, we talked also about... Um, how what the study of theology does is it, it allows us to do things like um, evaluate systems. So if people have ideas about who God is and how God should be thought and what God's word, sh- how it should be applied in our world, they do that oftentimes kind of systematically as a package. And, and theology allows us to evaluate all of that. We also have a chance to study Christian doctrine because there is a content to our teaching We need to learn what that content is. It also allows us to do some summarizing so that we can say, well, our faith really can be boiled down in some ways to some key ideas. And then I don't don't know how far I got with all of this, um, but we talked a little bit about how every living Christian is a theologian, whether you want to be one or not. You might think to yourself, well, no, I don't want to be a theologian. That's what Kelly is. Um. But there is something very positive about saying, I am one who has words about God that I want to share, or thoughts about God that I think. Um, There is something about who God is that controls my life, that indicates a pattern for my life. I live in response to who He is. He's done something. I respond to it. The fact that I respond in certain ways and have to reflect on what God's done in order for me to respond in certain ways means that I'm in some sense a theologian. God is this to me. God is this one to me. I have thoughts 
about who he is. They won't, they won't be thoughts exactly like your thoughts because we're different people. But each of us, as we reflect on who God is and what he's done in Christ, we have to, in some sense, be theologians. Another thing that I might have gotten to last week was this idea that theology is always connected to life. Uh, some people think in terms of theology being quite impractical. It's uh, talking about things in the clouds all the time or talking about deep doctrine or uh, all kinds of intricate biblical ideas or something like that. And, of course, it doesn't have to be like that at all because we make decisions every day about how we will live, how we will speak to people, how we will treat people, the things that will be priorities for us. All those decisions that we make are theologically driven decisions. And so if I treat my wife well or if I treat my wife poorly, that will reflect something of who I am before God at that moment. Same thing is true if I'm paying at the grocery store and I realize that she has not charged me enough and I say nothing. And I think to myself, well, I got away with five bucks that I should have paid. Well, doesn't that say something about what you think of God? Either your respect for him or your life lived out before him. Some kind of theological thing is going on there. If you don't care enough to save yourself five bucks, yeah, I would think your integrity would be worth at least five dollars. But sometimes we're pretty cheap when it comes to things. So it impacts the way that we live for us to have these thoughts about God for sure. And theology does all of that. I would kind of summarize this portion of things by saying theology is for knowing, loving, and serving God better, or it has very little value. And so again, in that way, it's very practical. Because ultimately, it is our theology, it is our personal perceptions of who God is that drives who we are. I'm way better than I was last week, but not out of the woods entirely. So let me move on to some other things that I think are really important. And this is kind of the, the first step. Like what, what I just did now and what I did last week was to say, hey, theology is really important. We in Churches of Christ haven't done theology very well. We need to do it better. What I want to do now is actually start getting into what I think are some of these core ideas. And this is going to take us many weeks from hence to talk about some of these core ideas. And the first core kind of idea I want to talk about is the notion of biblical theology. And what I'm wanting to say is that it's possible for a person to talk about God and make no reference to the Bible. Of course you can. We could easily talk about God all we wanted. I could theorize about God all day long, talk about who I think he is, I could talk about the experience that I have of God. I could talk about how there is some key element in my life that drives all my thoughts about who God is. For example, let's imagine that I'm a person who is very concerned about justice and very concerned about people being treated well. So I could let justice and treating people well drive everything that I think about God. 
That'd be easy. Um, I could just say, you know what? Uh, as a person concerned with the things of God, I've decided to become an um, international justice worker. And so I'm going to the country of Burundi, and I'm going to care for people there who are hungry. I could do that. And I could say that has entirely everything to do with who I am in terms of my relationship with God. But I could do all of that and, have, and make no reference to the Bible whatsoever. I could just say, God, to me, seems like somebody who's really into social justice, and so that drives me. I could make that choice. But biblical theology, to follow the Bible's core of things, seems to me to be a way better way to go than for me to simply theorize about who God is myself and for me to come up with thoughts about God. Somebody tell me why. Like, I think that there are really good reasons for me to say that. That to follow biblical theology as opposed to me just having theological ideas myself, that's a, it's a much better way to go. Tell, tell me why that would be the case. It's supposed to be. Um, maybe difficult for you to prove to me, Jim, that that's the case. Uh, I actually do believe that. But, um, but yeah, if there's some kind of claim being made by Scripture to be God's Word, then there's something about it that we need to pay attention to. What, what do we mean, by the way, when we say that the Bible is God's Word? And I'm not so much saying, is it true or not? I'm asking the question, what does it do? Because I think this is very significant. We'll say some more things about this here in a moment. It does establish a standard for sure. Like there's a a benchmark against which we can measure thoughts about God. I said a moment ago in talking about theology, that theology allows us to evaluate systems. But evaluate them with what? what? What standard would we evaluate them by? And I do think that the Bible creates for us a standard that allows us to to evaluate theologies for sure. It it does instruct us. It guides us. Um, And so it gives us pattern for living, not just a standard, but very specific instructions, as you say, guidance for exactly where we might go in response to who God is. Ronnie? It raises it above relative this viewpoint of, well, my theology of God is to go and help the poor. Well, that's just my opinion, and everyone has an opinion. Right. When you say it's God's word, you're trying to say, no, there's a standard, and it transcends. And therefore, whatever you're thinking of is your theology, you need to evaluate that or be willing to evaluate that against this uh, transcendent um, standard. Yeah. So, yeah, like I would agree with that. And so, like a a person certainly has the privilege of saying, I don't believe this. Like, I don't believe the Bible is the word of God. I don't believe that it's necessarily from him or true or anything else. We we have the privilege of saying that. We could, you know, that's a choice. But we also have the opportunity to say, no, actually, I believe that God is speaking here. I believe that he's communicating uh, one of the words that I was kind of looking for that nobody said yet is the notion of revelation. The biblical theology, the claim is that the Bible is revelatory, that Jesus himself was revelatory, 
that God chose to actually reveal himself to humankind. He didn't just stay off in the clouds, removed somewhere, and say, figure this out on your own. He didn't say, um, go ahead and have some thoughts about me if you want. Now, you know, what do you think about me? What do you think? And have us have to construct all of that on our own, out of our own experience. Instead, God said, I'm going to help you out here. Not only am I going to help you with some activity, so that I'm going to work in the world and show myself to you through some wonderful actions of mine and some communication with you, but I'm, I'm going to send my son also, who will be me in the flesh, representing me before you, so I'm going to be revelatory in that way. And then he also said, I'm, I'm going to take some of these things and write them down. I'm going to have some human beings who are going to communicate through some written words, revelation from me to you, so that you can discover the things that I want you to know about me also in a written kind of document. So whether it's through his great actions in the past, or it's through the personal revelation that he offers in Jesus, or it's in Scripture himself, What's happened is that we have revelation that has come to us. And that is absolutely key and central for what we understand about God. So the biblical theology then becomes descriptive and programmatic, setting the agenda for theology because it's revelatory. Like, you don't have to agree with me. But I actually believe that the Bible is revelation from God to humankind about himself. Where he says, this is who I am. And he doesn't just say, let me describe myself. I'm 5'10", weigh 185 pounds. He doesn't give that kind of description. Instead, he communicates through a series of interactions and the stories of those interactions. In fact, the Bible is itself, in one sense, one grand narrative of God's interaction with humankind. And as we reflect on that grand narrative, that Bible content, God reveals himself to us. And theology really is nothing more than reflecting on what it is that God has offered to us. And so it's descriptive, it's programmatic, and it sets the agenda for all these other thoughts that we have about God, or at least it should establish an agenda for how we think about who God is. Yes, go ahead. I think that, you know, to, to your point, like, you know, you can, you can take a thing like, you know, when he instructed how to build the ark or how he instructed how to build the, um, the, the ark of the, wait, wait, the, ark, the, the tabernacle, the temple, temple, all that, yeah. The ark of the covenant. So, you know, he described exactly, this is how I want you to put the cherubim. This is how I want you to build it. This is what I want you to do. So it tells us the detail that he enjoys when we do things. So he pays attention to detail. And so when we just gloss over things and think, oh, well, God will probably take that, I think that those kind of showing us, well, you know, I want you to build it like this and I want you to place that, I think it shows us a God that pays attention, very much pays attention to detail. Okay. And we shouldn't gloss over things. Yeah, and I, I appreciated especially the last couple of sentences where you said, it shows us a God who is, because I think that's the point. Like, God is interested in the tabernacle and, and wh- how tall it is and its size and all of that. And he's interested in the thread count of the curtains. And there's lots of things that are very interesting about all of that. You know, the uh, style of the of the table on which animals are sacrificed. And I mean, there's all kinds of things that are very interesting historically and, 
you know, kind of fascinating. But behind all of that stands what God is trying to say about himself. Why does he give us all those things? There's something of benefit there. Why he, why he gives us what he does. And all of that shows us something about who he is. In fact, it's fascinating the way that God desires so badly, apparently, to show us who he is. He really wants us to understand him, to see his character, his nature, come out in all of those things. So, yeah, I I agree with you. God indicates just how detail-oriented he is, and I think there's something about all that detail that tells us, well, this is who he is. And, in fact, this this is the kind of one who wants to relate to us and be connected to us. Ron? I appreciate that. In fact, the next point on here where I just clicked and it says it's prescriptive and normative, the word that could be used for that is the notion of authority. The scriptures are, in fact, authoritative. God intended them to be that way, an authoritative revelation of himself to humankind. Now, we sometimes maybe uh, are off base a a little bit when we tend to take that authoritative revelation as simply a law book, and sometimes we've treated all the Old Testament as law and even a lot of the New Testament as law. And I, and I don't think that it, there's so much that's not intended to be law. There's so much about uh, God revealing himself in ways that are not legalistically oriented at all. It's very in, instead very relational, very communicative in so much of what he does in Scripture. But the entire package there is, I think, intended... I, I say I think as if I'm hedging here. There's no I think here. I absolutely believe and I'm convinced that the claims that the Bible makes itself to, about itself to be revelatory and communicating God to us are actually to believed, to be believed. I think those are true. God has, in fact, shown himself in Scripture to be who he is. Now, again, I don't think it's just through Scripture. I think he's, he's done it through some wonderfully mighty acts and wonderful interaction with humankind, both with Israel in the past and then as he brings Messiah into the world as a, um, as a, a revelation of himself directly in the person of Jesus, like, I, I, all that is, is more than just Scripture. But Scripture does give an authoritative accounting of what God has done. And so that does become then, and needs to become for us, prescriptive and normative. And I say that without uh, any kind of apology at all, that Scripture is intended to be authoritative like that. We sometimes, I think, have maybe uh, taken Scripture and done some things with it, which I, I'm not convinced are absolutely right, um, we like to use the words infallible and inerrant when we describe Scripture, which are interesting words because they're not found in the Bible. The word inspiration is found in the Bible in Second Timothy chapter 3. I absolutely believe that Scripture is inspired. I wrestle with some of these words that we ourselves have tried to apply to the Bible, which aren't necessarily biblical words. We can talk about that maybe at another time. Um, I think that core biblical theology includes the idea of setting the teachings of the Bible 
in the Bible's own thought forms and language, not imposed thought forms and language. Uh, In fact, that's kind of what I was just saying a moment ago about inerrant and fallibility, which are thought forms and words applied to the Bible by us, but which aren't found in Scripture itself. One of the things that is so important, and, and in many ways this is right at the core of what we're talking about, When we start to identify priorities, theological priorities, and say these things are the very core of our faith, we need to take that core specifically from what the Bible itself indicates is its core. Now, sometimes what we've done is we have allowed certain, and there's no way around this word, philosophical ideas to move us in the direction of choosing things as core which aren't necessarily the biblical core. Like, let me give you an example. If I ask you whether or not logic is a good thing, if you're over the age of 30, you probably would say that logic is an extremely good thing. In fact, If you're over the age, maybe 30 is too young. Maybe I should have said under the age of 40 or 50. But for those of us who grew up on the other side of the 60s or something, rationalism and logic were absolutely the key to truth as far as we were concerned. We thought that truth could be ascertained through logic and reason history, that those things would would constantly bring forth truth that we could depend on. If you talk to somebody who's 25 today, and you want to talk to them about logic and reason, and then also mention, throw in there the word truth, they may, may well look at you as if you have two heads, and they will not necessarily understand even the concepts that you're talking about. To talk about truth to a person who's 25 in our world, and I'm not saying that all 25-year-olds are like this, of course, but there are many 25-year-olds who philosophically have a real problem with the notion of there being ultimate truth because we all come at things from our own perspectives. And so how can there possibly be truth when all truth is somehow related to who we are? in our experiences. I'm going to see everything differently because of who I am, and so what's true for you isn't going to be true for me. That's the way a 25-year-old thinks. Well, it's interesting because our approach to the Bible and churches of Christ for a long time assumed the truthfulness of the whole logical, rational, reasonable paradigm. You bring someone who's 25 to the Bible and you try and read the Bible just like that with them and there's a good chance that they're, again, not really going to know even what you're kind of talking about. And they won't see the priorities that you think are priorities. They're not going to see the same priorities. They're not going to ferret out those priorities and establish what's biblically true and at the core the same way that I would in my 60s. They just won't. 
They think differently. They reason differently. Now, what I do, because I was raised in the area I was, I assume that my way of things has to be right. My way of looking at those things in Scripture, I must have it right. Like the way I think has got to be the right way to think. Meaning that we have to recognize that the way that we look even at the Bible is oftentimes governed by our own presuppositions. And I do that as a 60-year-old, and the 25-year-old does that as a 25-year-old. So how are we going to get beyond that? How are we going to get beyond the fact that I approach life and reasoning and truth one way, and somebody who's 25 approaches life and reasoning and truth in an entirely different way, and it's very difficult to establish which one's right? How are we going to get beyond that, especially when it comes to reading the Bible? Well, I don't know if this is ultimately the right answer or not, but it seems to me that setting the teachings of the Bible in the Bible's own thought forms and language, not ones that are imposed by my presuppositions, is ultimately going to allow the Bible to, to create its own core. So that the biblical priorities become then our priorities instead of my own priorities being the main priorities. And let me use an example that I used last week. We assumed for a long, long time in Churches of Christ that one of the real priorities for God was the manner in which we worshipped. And so we worked very hard at making sure that our style of worship conformed to what we thought was a biblical uh, pattern. So we said, we're going to worship like this and like this and like this and like this. And we actually looked for those biblical patterns in the Bible to establish how we worshipped because we perceived how we worshipped, the specific methods in which we worshipped, as being of real priority to God. And I would say, after 40 years of reflection on that, that that wasn't actually the best question to be asking about biblical priorities. In fact, when I read in the New Testament, and I, and I try and find in the New Testament the biblical priorities, and so I ask, what were the priorities for Paul, and the priorities for Peter, and the priorities for Jesus himself? There's almost, if I'm honest, there's almost nothing in the New Testament that is prescriptive in terms of the way in which we worship. There's very little. There are some things in there about the Lord's Supper. There are some things in there about your heart. But really, there's not a whole lot in the New Testament that prescribes how it is that we're supposed to worship. At least nothing like what we see in the Old Testament. So if we were going to say, well, God has very specific ways in which he wants us to worship him. We could turn to the Old Testament and find many, many, many things listed. You would find nothing like those lists in the New Testament. In fact, it seems to me an intentional move on the part of the Holy Spirit as he goes from Old Covenant to New Covenant that he specifically takes out all that language from his written word that includes the list of instructions about how we're supposed to worship. Those lists are not there. 
Instead, like I said, there are a lot of comments about our hearts. There's a lot of comments about our approach to who God is. It's very relational language as opposed to legislated rules about how worship is to be conducted. Well, the fact that I was a part of a movement that had a certain perspective about what the big questions about who God were, like, well, God's mainly concerned about how we worship him, the fact that we would make that a major question actually, I think, was probably a mistake. But that's a movement, or that's a move, I should say, an intellectual move made by people who have a certain presupposition about who they think God is, and so they ask that kind of question, and they do that kind of theology, and become that kind of church, because that was their presupposition. And I'm not sure that was a very good way to go about things, because it's not, it seems to me, at all, at the biblical core, especially when I turn to the New Testament and I ask, what does God want from us? There's no passage that screams back at me, what God wants from us more than anything is for us to have all kinds of specific rules about how we're supposed to worship Him. I don't find that in Paul, I don't find it in Peter, James, or anybody else, and I certainly don't find it in Jesus. So what caused us to find all that? Why is it that we had five acts of worship that we said were right at the core? How did we get there? Why is it that we had five steps of salvation? How did we get there? Why are there always five? And I would say that that the reason we went there were because of certain presuppositions that we had when we weren't allowing the core biblical ideas to rise like cream to the top and become for us the center. And so what I want to do in this class is to reflect on all of that and assert what I think anyway, and you can dispute this or you can agree with it, whatever you want to do, what I think are the center. And, and you might say, well, you know, your center is not going to be my center because you're 25 years old and you see things differently than I do. I get that. But at least in this class, I want you to be asking the question, what is at the heart of the biblical core? What's at the heart of the biblical theology and not just the theology that I came to the Bible with with my presuppositions? Ron? But the early church leaders in the 1830s, they were debating all of these and they were struggling with the institutionalized church, the clergy, and so there was a, a movement in, in the Western world to find out what should we be doing, how should we be worshiping God. And these guys debated this for years. Yeah. And out of this debate came different groups, like the Church of Christ, um, the Brethren, some of the false groups like uh, Joseph Smith, Seventh-day Adventist. These all came from the same argument that these the church leaders were having, and so the, the people in the Church of Christ, the leaders, they felt that these were the issues of the time. Right. And so we mustn't forget the, the history where all this came from. Oh, absolutely. We're discussing these. Well, I agree, and in fact, um, I appreciate you saying that. One of the things that uh, was it, Jim? I think it was Jim. Johnson came up to me last week afterwards and said, you know, um, we need to remember that these good people were the ones who brought us to Christ. And I absolutely agree. Um, 
if you'll notice, like I've had many, many opportunities where I could have, I could have left Churches of Christ a long time ago. Um, haven't done so. I'm still a Church of Christ preacher. Have every intention of being a Church of Christ preacher all my life. Uh, maybe not always employed. Someday you'll say that's enough of that. But uh, you know, but my intention is that I'm going to be in the Churches of Christ the rest of my life. Love our heritage. Love our movement. And in fact, as I'm kind of denigrating our past and saying, well, we didn't get right at the biblical core, I want to always say at the same time, the things that the churches of Christ have stood for by and large, I absolutely believe in and support and have been so proud to be a part of this heritage. There are so many good things about those who've gone before me. Incredible. Way more good than bad, for sure. But it doesn't mean that there aren't some ways in which we can even be better than we have been. And in fact, that's that's what I hope happens with me tomorrow. Like, it may be that tomorrow I'm going to wake up and say, man, all those things I told those people yesterday in class, that was a bunch of hogwash. Why was I thinking that? That's a possibility. And if not all of it, at least some of it, that probably will happen. I'll come to the office tomorrow and look at my notes and think, what was I thinking? I read my Bible last night and I learned something completely new. That's very possible. So we, I absolutely appreciate that heritage. Um, and I, I'm so grateful for it. But one thing that's interesting, and of course the people 100 years, now ago, or 100 years from now will be saying this about us. But the fact is, is that those people, the Alexander Campbells and the Barton Stones of the world, were living characteristic lives of their own era. And they were seeing things the way they did because of who they were in a culture. And their minds weren't pure. Their minds were influenced by all kinds of factors that made them who they were. And so they thought in certain ways, partially because of the time in which they grew up. I'm a child of the 1960s, the 1970s, and so I think a certain way. There are those who are, of course, who are 25 and they're children of their age and they think a certain way. So we're all going to come to this in some sense differently. What I hope is that in the midst of that, that we allow the Bible and its teachings, its own thought forms and language to set the agenda for us and not our imposed thought forms and language that come out of whatever philosophical milieu, climate, from which we come. I hope we can do that. And if we can, I think we're in a much better place. Especially if, if we have eyes open enough to recognize how those things have in fact, in fact influenced us and how they sometimes have caused us to be a bit skewed in the way that we look at things. Ken. <laughs>
right? To, to get it right and right. don't miss the point to logic, rationalism, whatever it might be, historicism. Um, but if you look at science, if you look at you know, the universe, if you look at you know, the world, if you look at medicine, if you look at physics, everybody, you know, people trying to produce things. And they, they simply can't what God's made, for example, about a you know, one-cell organism or the creation or the origin of a one-cell organism or evolution. I mean, the reductionism, that's what it's about. You know, in science, they're in medicine, they're trying to understand these things, you know, and develop cures for cancer, MS, and homeless and diseases. Because we just can't seem to get there. Yeah. And it's reducing, reducing. And you go, science is this one. Well, is it really wonderful? Yeah. I mean, we've hardly, yeah. we've hardly scratched surfaces on things, right? I can remember when Greg was... Um, the Lord's Supper one time and he talked about the cross and the genome. Right? I mean, you could expand on that a little bit. I mean, just you know, yeah. we're so limited in human minds but we think we're so smart and, you know, every generation is going to come at it that way too. Yeah. You know, if I'm 25 or if I'm 65. Right. Yeah, I would agree. In fact, it's fascinating the way that the whole perception of what science does and how it's, what it's capable of has changed in the last 50 years where what you're saying is exactly right, that um, we used to think that science would have all the answers to everything if we could just be scientific enough, that the world could, could be solved by scientific method, for example. We'd figure it all out. And one of the things that we've discovered is that that's not the case. Uh, in fact, science itself is subject to the presuppositions that people bring with themselves to the data. So that people can't even look at scientific data the same because of their own perceptions and backgrounds. It's the 25-year-old who actually sees that way better than the 65-year-old who understands. Tony? Yeah, but then I have a question. Yeah. If I heard what you said about if, if the, in the 1800s, Alexander Campbell, they made the judgments they made based on a whole bunch of cultural, age-related, uh, philosophical Yes. Not not only that, but certainly that was influencing them, yes. Agreed, but then what is the how what what hope do we have in our age? Because we're gonna be just the same. Yes. By what's going on around us. Yes. Right? I would agree. Especially with with uh, the question of you know, millennials versus everybody else. Right. And uh, what's prevalent in their minds versus versus ours. So but but in the end, is it not like you said in the beginning of the class, what are the core things that are faith-related? Because ultimately, it's a matter of faith, right? Yes. If you don't have faith in God, you're going to look at the Bible and say, forget it. I'm yeah. never going to believe what it says. Right. And the same when you compare that against items of evolution. Yes. The whole story of evolution. Yes. It's a matter of faith. I, I would agree with that. Ultimately, it is. Now, I think that there are things that are compelling uh, about our faith system that makes it believable, uh, trustworthy. I, I think it, it substantiates itself in many ways. But ultimately, is it going to be a question of faith? It is, actually. I, I think that's true. So that came to me earlier when you were talking today is that whether the world likes it or not, God's uh, involvement with mankind from the year dot has permeated this whole idea of standards of morality whether they like it or not yeah. in, today, in today's world you go into and I'm glad that Ken piped up because you go into matters of law and how law 
is in various countries and cultures around the world, a lot of it is in the Word of God. Mm. Because of what God has taught us from the beginning. Yeah. You know, it, we didn't learn that inherently just by ourselves. Right. I don't disagree. I, you know, I, I would absolutely agree that God has revealed himself consistently in the workings of humankind. And that really is what we're talking about here, is the fact that God has revealed himself. And if God has revealed himself, then we want to, to, to ground our lives and our thoughts in what God has revealed about himself. Um, organization, grouping, scheme, and categories of biblical ideas are those found in Scripture. I, I hope that that's the case. If we're, again, if we're going to prioritize something, if we're going to systematize things in any way, I'm hoping that it would be the scheme and the categories of the Bible itself that become the source of those, those schemes, that systemization. We don't want it to have that come from our own heads. We want the Bible to do that for itself. So if, if we can look at, at the writings of Paul and say, here were Paul's priorities and make those our own, or here are Peter's priorities, and of course, here are the priorities of Jesus of Nazareth. If we can make those priorities or those summarizations our priorities, and if that becomes the model for our summarizations, then we're way ahead than if we try and do this for ourselves. One of the things that biblical theology does is that it recognizes God's act in history in addition to what he does with his word. And his historical acts, his mighty acts in history are huge for understanding who God is as revealed in the Bible. It includes a narrative interpretation of God's redeeming acts as well. I've talked about how the Bible is one grand story from Genesis 1-1 through Revelation chapter 22, whatever the last verse is. All of that is one grand narrative of God's interaction with humankind. If we try and find just laws there, we make a mistake. If we try and find just pure history there, I think we make a mistake. If we try and read this as a long narrative account of humankind's interaction with God and God's interaction with humankind is really the way I should say that, I think we're, uh, we're far ahead. Uh, and then it includes, of course, an immense amount of unity and diversity. So there is so much there in Scripture which communicates God's revelation of himself in all kinds of different ways. So it's not all law, it's not all history, it's not all poetry, it's not all gospel, it's not all letter, it's not all apocalyptic. But it comes in all kinds of different forms, and we need to be able to sort that out well in order to get to the Bible's heart. Well, some other things that we're not going to get to today, uh, but at least I'll do this, and that is that God is known through revelation. And we've already been there today, but I wanted us to see, again, how hugely important this notion is. That as we come to ask the question, what's at the biblical heart? It needs to be viewed as something that God has revealed to us, not something that we come up with on our own. Okay, we'll continue from there. Thanks, everybody.